All right, praise God. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, if you are here for the first time, you are our special guest. Uh, I think Anson already mentioned it, but please fill out a Connect card, uh, and that's a great way for us to stay in touch. And for joining us online, I want to say thank you for joining us online. All right, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 12. We are in this passage. Um, been so great to go through this week after week, but please open up your Bibles. If you're joining us in person, you'll also see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you will see it uh, on your screen at home. But 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 12, and then we're going to look at 13, 8 through 10. So two different passages today. Praise God. This is God's word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, and to one is given the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Okay, now turn with me to 13, 8 through 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much, and we give you all the glory, and we give you all the praise, God. We worship you. And Lord God, thank you for your presence that is here with us. Thank you for your word. It brings life. It brings correction. And it brings guidance. And I pray that you would speak today, Lord God. I pray that anything from my own mind and mouth you would delete. Anything from your word, you would drive deep into our hearts. Thank you for everybody here. Thank you for everybody online. Lord, you are worthy of worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, praise God. Well, today we are continuing our series on spiritual gifts. And even though we have been looking at this topic for the last few weeks, I feel like we're barely scratching the surface. I really feel that way. And why is that? Well, it's because it's such a big topic, amen? It is such a huge, vital topic that touches on a lot of different things. And so, for example, spiritual gifts are one of the most direct ways that we can experience God. See, if you're wanting to experience God, and a lot of believers, I believe, do want to experience God, if you want to know that God is in your life, working in your life, then how do you know? How do you experience God in that way? Discover and use your spiritual gifts. You know, I want to share something that I heard this past week from a pastor but he heard some Christians talking about a worship service that they had gone to, and they said, you know, I didn't get anything out of worship today. And this wasn't his own church, it was somewhere else. But when he heard that, this is what the pastor said. Well, then, you don't understand worship. Because worship is not about getting, it's about giving to God. 
Amen? It is about giving your heart, your mind, your service to God because he's already given everything to you. So that is what worship is. See, there are two different kinds of people who come to church, but there are getters and there are givers. But getters come to mainly get something for themselves, but givers come to mainly give something to God. They want to give worship to God. So these are the true worshipers. And why am I talking about this? Well, well, here's what's beautiful. But if you come to church as a true worshiper to give something to God, to give your heart, your mind, your time, even your spiritual gifts, then something beautiful happens. But God is a servant king, and he begins to give back to you. And so you receive even more than what you give. So what am I saying? Offer your spiritual gifts to God as worship to God. See, discover them. Use them in service to him, and you're going to receive more back from God. See, this is how you begin to experience God. And I've already shared this before, but this is one of the main ways I experience God. But it's through the teaching of the word of God. I believe that's one of my spiritual gifts, and I experience God regularly in that way. So this is one way spiritual gifts touches our lives. But here's another way. But spiritual gifts also touch our personal identity and calling. And we're going to look at this more in a few weeks. But who are you in Christ? Why am I here in the world? Have you guys ever asked yourselves that? But if you have, spiritual gifts can give you a direct answer. See, God doesn't want you to just drift through life wondering, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? And so again, this has a lot to do with your identity, your calling, and we're going to look at this more in a couple weeks when we talk about discovering your gifts. But this is what spiritual gifts can do in your life. It touches on that area. It also touches on building and the functioning of the church. See, in a very literal sense, if we don't know our spiritual gifts, if we don't use them, then we're going to be disabled. I use that in a very technical way. But we can't function as the church. You know, this year, our theme is what? Be the church. Amen. Helen, I can always count on you, Helen. But be the church, right? I don't even know how we can be the church unless we know and exercise our spiritual gifts. So could that be the reason why we're going through this series? Hmm, Maybe. (laughs) But we need to know our spiritual gifts if we're going to be the church. So that's another way it touches our lives. Spiritual gifts also touch on God's redemptive work in the world. And so I've been mentioning that here and there the last few weeks. But anytime the kingdom of God is advancing in the world today, you know what's happening? Someone, somewhere, is exercising their spiritual gifts. Guaranteed. See? If ministry is advancing, if programs are being done, the preaching of the gospel is happening, Christians are inviting non-believers into their homes. What is happening? People are exercising their spiritual gifts. So what this means is Jesus is literally redeeming the world through your spiritual gifts and through mine. So spiritual gifts also touch on the redemption of the world. See, this goes way beyond just you discovering your personality type and taking a survey online. But this touches on many, many different areas. So, you know, it's been such a joy. I've been seeing this firsthand in the last few weeks, but, you know, I've been really busy with, like, a lot of Easter prep. You probably know that. If you're on leadership, you're getting all these emails from me. But as we've been preparing for Easter... You know what's been happening? People have been stepping up to serve. And I see that happening in accordance to their spiritual gifts. I love that. But people are like, oh, I'll do that. I'll help out with that. And I'm like, that's right, because you have that spiritual gift. And I don't even think they're doing it consciously. It's not like they're thinking, oh, we're going through spiritual gifts, so I must exercise my spiritual gift. I don't think that's what they're thinking. 
but they're simply wanting to serve. They just want to do what they feel called to do, what they're able to do, what they like to do. And as they do that, what's happening? They are exercising their spiritual gifts. So do you see how important spiritual gifts are? We can't even have an Easter service without it. But spiritual gifts are vital to our worship of God, our identity in God, our service to God in the church, even bringing salvation of God into the world. All of it happens as we discover and use our spiritual gifts. And so this is why we're talking about it. It is so vital. And what is a spiritual gift? We're not going to be going through all those questions again. If you're curious what we've been talking about, go online. Everything is online. But what is a spiritual gift? Well, it is any special ability God has given to us as a gift. That's why they're called spiritual gifts. Empowered by the Spirit and used to serve others inside and outside the church. If you have that, you have a spiritual gift. And there are many different kinds. Last week we looked at all the ones listed in the New Testament, 22 by name, unique gifts. But there are probably more than that because we know there are some gifts that weren't mentioned, like intercession, worship leading, missions. But there are probably more than the ones mentioned. So there are a variety of kinds. Not only that, there are a variety of expressions of gifts, right? Two people can have the exact same gift, but they operate it in two different ways. They express it in two different ways. I talked about how I have the gift of teaching, but also Sister Susan, where is she? She has the gift of teaching, and it looks very different. If you were to come to our CG, it looks very different. I want to say they're both good. <laughs> Hers is good. You can be the judge of my teaching. But anyway, but they're both good, right, if it's in God, in his spirit. But they're very different. So different expressions, not only that, but different levels of effectiveness. So they're all different kinds, different varieties. But there are many different kinds of spiritual gifts. And who has spiritual gifts? Who has spiritual gifts? Everyone who has confessed the Lord Jesus Christ and has the Spirit of God living in them. So I don't care if you haven't been to church in like a year, if you are backslidden, or if you're like a 30-year mature Christian walking with the Lord for decades, you all have spiritual gifts. It doesn't mean that you're using them in the same level of effectiveness or even honoring God with them, but you have them, I have them. And so spiritual gifts, it is relevant. See, you're sitting here as a believer right now today, then you have a spiritual gift. Everything we're talking about, you have. So we're talking about spiritual gifts. It is vital that we understand them. And this is why Paul told the Corinthians, don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Amen. So that is God's encouragement to us, his command, actually. But do not be ignorant regarding spiritual gifts. And so this is kind of what we've been looking at. I'm not covering everything again, but this is what we've been looking at week after week. But here's a new question we're going to look at. So we've been looking at all these different questions, about seven of them. We're on question number six now. But here's a new question. Are the miraculous gifts for today? Okay, so that's a brand new question. Are they for today? And why do we need to know this? Well, the reason why is because if the miraculous gifts are still being given by God today, then guess what? These gifts must be very important, in fact, vital to our life and to the church. So if we don't have them, then we must be missing something very important. Okay, we're going to be hindered in doing God's will in a very important way. Otherwise, why would God still be giving them? So we need to know, is God still giving these gifts today? Also, if God is still giving these miraculous gifts today, then there are certain ways that we should be walking with God, amen? 
There are certain ways that we need to be living our Christian lives. So this is also very important because we don't want to be living our Christian lives with an entire area of the Christian life that we're just ignoring or we know nothing about. And so we aren't living in that way. We're not doing those things. And so we're not following God's will. So are miraculous gifts for today? This is a very important question. And in one sense, every spiritual gift is miraculous. So you might be wondering, what are you talking about? They're all miraculous, aren't they? And yes, they are, because the Holy Spirit empowers all the gifts. He works through all the gifts. But when I say miraculous gifts, I don't mean just all the gifts, right, that the Spirit is working through. I mean something very specific. I'm talking about prophecy, miracles. That's a very broad topic, just anything that God does that is supernatural, that brings glory to him. Miracles, healings, all different kinds of healings, discerning of spirits, knowing whether a person or a situation has the spirit of God, a human spirit, or the enemy's spirit upon them or behind them, casting out of demons, tongues, the interpretation of tongues. These are the specific ones I'm talking about. These are the gifts that are more unusual. You don't see these every day. Does God still give these gifts today? Are they still for today? And there are only two ways you can answer this question. No. No, these gifts are not for today. And people who say no, and maybe there are some here, you say no, well, then you are a cessationist. It doesn't mean that you want to break away from the United States of America. Okay, that's a different cessationist. I think that's cessationist, right? English is very strange. But this is a cessationist. Hear the difference? Cessationist, cessationist. Never mind. But it's it's very different, right? It's not about you want to break away from the U.S. It's talking about that you do not believe that the gifts continue today. They have ceased. So that's one way you can answer it. Here's another way. Yes. These gifts are still for today. And if that's you, you are a continuationist. Okay, that one's easier to understand. You believe that the gifts continue. So these are the only two ways you can answer these questions. And how you answer the question has a very huge impact on the way you are living out your Christian life. You know, before we jump into these two different views, I want to share a story with you to share how confusing it could be. Okay, how confusing it can be in terms of like, do I believe these gifts are still around? Okay, where do I stand on this? But I remember having, uh, hearing about this one pastor one time. This is a true story. But basically, he has this very large church, and this man came into one of his services on a Sunday. And so he found a seat kind of in the middle of the sanctuary. He sat down, and the pastor began to preach. And at one point in the sermon, to that man's great surprise, and this was his first visit to that church, the pastor looked directly at him. And this was a church of thousands of people. So he was like, whoa, why are you looking at me? And this pastor actually even pointed at the man. And then the pastor said, again, in a room full of thousands of people, you own this kind of business. And he named that business. And then he said, you've been running your business on Sundays to avoid God. And last week, you made this amount of profit. And he actually mentioned the amount. And by this point, the man was like just about to fall out of his chair. He's like, what in the world? That's true. All of that was true. How do you even know any of that about my life? And so this man got very confused, very scared, and he actually left the church immediately after the service was over. And then after he got home, he kind of thought for a little while, and then he realized, you know what? Maybe God was speaking to me. That's how this pastor knew this stuff about my life. God was speaking to me. So the following Sunday, he decided 
to shut his business down, not, not forever, but just that day, close it up. And then he thought about going back to that church, but then he was kind of scared, and he's like, no, what if I go back and more stuff gets revealed about my life, right? So it's like, good point. Yeah, I would feel the same way. By the way, something like this exact same thing happened to my brother, and I've shared that before, so I know how scared someone can be. My brother was very scared. It's okay. He already knows I talk about him at church, so he's okay with it. But I know how scared someone can be. So this man got scared, but then he thought again, going, you know what? But God met me, so I'm going to go back. So he went to that church again, and then these are his words. Afterwards, I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. So that man who visited that church as a non-believer, he got converted. He became a believer because God spoke to him in a direct way. Now, why am I sharing that story? I'm sharing that story because that pastor, and some people get very surprised when I say this, was Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, and by the way, one of the biggest heroes among cessationists. I have friends who are cessationists, and they love Spurgeon. They talk about him all the time. And yet, Spurgeon himself, who, by the way, was a cessationist on paper, he himself called himself a cessationist. In fact, in his biography, which is where I read this, right before sharing that story, this is what he said. The days of special visions and voices and prophesyings have passed away. He said, these things aren't around anymore. <laughs> but we can still say with Peter, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And then he went on and shared the story about his own life. So Spurgeon said, the days of special visions, voices, and prophesyings have passed away and yet, when you look at his own life and the way he did ministry, I believe he prophesied. What else could that have been? He had the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is the, the special ability to receive revelation from God. Never apart from Scripture, out of line with Scripture, but in step with Scripture. But it is a special revelation from God for a specific person or situation. And Spurgeon, according to his own confession operate in this gift more than once. I think many times. So what am I saying? Answering that question, are miraculous gifts still for today? Okay, that's a confusing question. Okay, that could be hard to answer. Okay, it is not as straightforward as you think. Because some cessationists say no, and then they go on operating in these gifts, kind of like Spurgeon. Okay, they're just no on paper, but then they actually really live in them. Some continuationists say yes, but day-to-day, -day they live like cessationists. They go, oh, yeah, all the gifts are around. I believe in all of them. But day-to-day, -day, they don't seek them. They don't understand them. They don't operate in them. So practically, they're just cessationists, even though on paper, they're continuationists. See, these how confusing it could be? Other people, they're committed cessationists, and they don't ever dare or even dream trying to operate in these gifts. So they don't believe they're for today, and they would never even dare try to do them today. And then there are other people who are committed continuationists. They believe all the miraculous gifts are for today, and they actually pursue them, and they operate in them. And so there's a wide variety, all different kinds. So all of this could be pretty confusing. So what can we do? Well, what we can do is what we do all the time. We need to look in Scripture. Okay, so we need to go back to the Bible, look in Scripture, and see what God has to say. And so what does God have to say? Well, there are a lot of different passages, a lot of different things that these different camps pull from. We can't look at everything. But I want to look at some of the best arguments from both sides. Okay, I'm trying to be objective here. But we're going to look at some of the best arguments from both sides and see if they line up with the Word of God. Now, 
I'm not going to even pretend to go in depth into all these arguments. I can't. We're not going to. Uh, there are entire books and books written on them. You can look at all that. And by the way, some of these sermons, they're not the best place to go into like deep analytical theology, analyzing theology and Bible passages. A little bit, but not, not too much, right? So what I'm going to do is today we're going to start with the cessationist side and then we're going to finish next week with the continuationist side. But I just want to look at just what these arguments are. Like just mention them and then give a response to them. And hopefully you're going to be stirred up in your curiosity enough to go study it more on your own. But this is very important. Again, this is God's will for your life, my life. How are we going to live with God, walk with God? How are we going to do his ministry in this world? Okay, this is very important. So first, why cessationism? Okay, why cessationism? Okay, why, why would I even consider this? Is this even biblical? Now, before I even get into these arguments, I want to say there are many cessationists that I respect. I do. I genuinely respect them. I have friends who are cessationists. I know they love the Lord. Okay, not all of them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Most of them. No, all of them. All of my friends who are, who are Christian cessationists, they love the Lord. Okay, I can't judge their hearts. I'm going to just pretend like they love the Lord. I'm just kidding. They love the Lord. They're passionate. If you're listening, you're just kidding. They're passionate about the gospel. I've even sat under some of their preaching. I've passed for friends who are cessationists. I've been very blessed. I have been. And yet, when it comes to miraculous gifts, I believe they're wrong. I believe they're wrong. And, and the reason why is because I believe they have very little support in Scripture to back up their arguments. I know sometimes they get surprised when I say that, but I think their arguments have very little support in Scripture. Now, I know they're going to disagree, but I've, I've not found a single argument from Scripture that is convincing for cessationism. Okay, not a single one. And I've read different books on this. I've listened to sermons on this over the years, many years. And if any of them convinced me, I would be a cessationist. Okay, I would be one. But I'm not. Get the cast out of the bag. This is the perspective I'm coming from. But I'm not. And the reason why is because I've never come across a biblical argument that was convincing. Because that, that doesn't convince me. Okay, that's not what I see in that passage or in that verse. So then what are these arguments? Well, let me briefly mention four. There are more, but these are probably the four biggest ones, okay? The four biggest ones. First, they have the sufficiency of Scripture argument. Okay, this is a big one. This might be the biggest one. But the sufficiency of Scripture argument. But cessation is, they say, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are no longer needed today. Why? Because cessationists believe God at times, can still perform miracles. So they don't deny miracles. They said God can still heal the sick if he wants to. He can still, you know, raise the dead even. He can do miracles. But he doesn't on an ongoing, regular basis, especially through the church. He doesn't. Why? Because we have the Bible. And in the Bible, we have everything we need. God doesn't work that way through the church because we have everything we need through the Bible. All the church needs is the Bible. And the preaching of the gospel, is there power in that? Absolutely. Can that bring revival and shake the earth? Absolutely. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe that. But is it everything though? Is this all we need? Well, it's a complicated answer. <laughs> because at one level, I believe in the sufficiency of scripture. I do. Yes, at one level, the Bible is sufficient to give us everything we need for faith and life, but it's the way they define it, right? So we'll get into that. But this is how, um, 
this is one of the verses they use, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Bible is all we need, period. So those miraculous gifts were only there to help the church until the Bible was finished being written. And once the Bible was finished being written by the apostles, and by the way, these miraculous gifts were mainly there to authenticate the apostles. We'll look at that argument next. But the miraculous gifts authenticated the apostles, and once they finished writing the Bible, no more gifts. We don't need them. The Bible is all we need. And so this is their argument. And I have two quick responses to that. First, if you go back to 2 Timothy 3.16, Everything I just said about their argument, and I'm not trying to set up a straw man. You know, straw man is like something that you kind of make um, make up as another size argument. You knock it down, right? I'm not trying to make a straw man, but but everything I just said about their argument is not stated in Second Timothy three sixteen. Did you hear what I just said? Everything that I just said about that argument is not found in these verses. You could go back there; you don't see it. Where in 2 Timothy 3.16 does it say, once the Bible is finished being written, all the miraculous gifts are gone? That is just not there. That is not there. I don't even think it's implied there. Cessationists might say, no, it's implied, but I don't even think it's implied. But it is not there. In fact, there's no verse in the Bible that says that. Again, that might be a little surprising to some people. No verse? There's no verse. I've read through the entire New Testament several times. It's not there. There's no verse that actually says that argument, that actually says it in a very direct way. Once the Bible is finished being written, authenticating the authors of the Bible, once they're finished writing it, all the gifts are gone. They're going to disappear. There's no, there's no verse like that. So I'm just going to leave it there, okay? You can study that more if you want. But that verse is not there, and it's not in 2 Timothy 3. Second, the sufficiency of Scripture, which I believe in, by the way, does not mean there is absolutely nothing outside of Scripture we need for faith and life. That is not what sufficiency of Scripture means. Okay, so understand that again. Let me say it again. Sufficiency of Scripture does not mean there is absolutely nothing outside the Bible we need for faith and life. That is not what that means. I don't think cessationists would say that either, but that is basically what they're arguing for. Okay, they might not acknowledge that. Oh, we're not saying that, but that's basically what you're saying, though. If you're saying the Bible is all you need and that's why you don't need these gifts, that's kind of what you're saying. That there is absolutely nothing outside of Scripture you need for faith and life. But I don't think that's true. Okay, think about this for a moment, but imagine the world's greatest survivalist. I don't know, who's the world's greatest survivalist? Bear Grylls? You guys ever watch that show, Bear Grylls? But let's say Bear Grylls comes to you. He has a show on how to survive in the wilderness. And he hands you a manual. And he basically says, hey, this is everything you need to survive in the wilderness, this manual. This is everything you need. Okay, if Bear Grylls came to you and told you that, I think you would understand what he meant, right? Immediately. I think most of us here would understand. Okay, we know that he's not talking about if you need to light a fire, hey, look at all these pages. Rip them out, and you can light a nice fire. If you're, like, going through the mountains and get lost and you are getting hungry, you can eat these pages, right? It's food. You can tear them out, eat them. If you get thirsty, hey, guess what? You can squeeze this manual and water will come out and you can drink it. Okay, we, we know that's not what he's saying. Okay, we know what he means by this is all you need 
is, in this manual, is all the information you need, all the guidance you need. It points to things beyond this book, outside of this book, to things that you really need, right? This is everything you need to survive, right? I mean, we, we know that. That's what he meant. Now, I know that's not a perfect analogy because in some sense, the word of God does feed us. <laughs> you can't squeeze out nourishing drink, spiritual drink. But you get my point, right? See, the Bible, when people say this is all you need, it doesn't mean everything outside the Bible you don't need, this is all you need. That's not what it means because the Bible itself does what? It points to things beyond the Bible. You please understand that, brothers and sisters. The moment you open up this book, what are you reading? There are all kinds of things God is talking about in this book beyond the Bible. Like, what are you, what are you talking about, Roy? Prayer, right? Prayer? Okay, when you're reading and studying the Bible, you're not praying. I mean, you can, you can mix it in and incorporate it, but you're not praying. Praying is something else. It's pointing to something outside the Bible. What about church community? Do we all need church community to survive? Okay, reading the Bible by yourself in your room is not church community. That's something outside the Bible, beyond the Bible. What about spiritual gifts? Okay, that's another one. That is beyond the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's pointing to beyond the Bible, though. Do you get, do you get my point? It's just like that survival manual. It is everything you need. Amen. Yes, I affirm that. But that doesn't mean anything outside of this book is not from God. No, that, the Bible itself is pointing to many, many things outside and beyond this book. It's going to guide you into those things, teach you the truth about those things, but they are not the Bible. They're not the same thing. And so that is the sufficiency of Scripture. And so what am I saying? You can't use that as an argument against the miraculous gifts. And cessationists do that, and it's not convincing to me. First of all, that verse is not found in the Scripture. You don't find it. Nowhere in the Bible does it say once the Bible's finished being written, these gifts are gone. You don't find that verse. And secondly, the sufficiency of Scripture is not talking about there's nothing outside the Bible. No, there are many things. But the Bible is our highest authority. It is our ultimate guide. It is sufficient. It gives you everything you need. So is that clear? So that is one major, major argument from cessationists. And in my eyes, they're not, it's not convincing. Here's another argument. It's the authenticating the apostles' argument, authenticating the apostles' argument. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul wrote, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so that's an interesting verse, and cessationists use that as definitive proof that the main purpose of spiritual gifts is what? To authenticate the apostles. Look, that's the reason why God gave it to the church. That's the main reason we have it in the church. And once, the, uh, to authenticate them to do what? Write the Bible. And once that is done, gifts are gone. Gifts are gone. You don't need to authenticate the apostles once they're finished doing what they're called to do. Write the Bible. Once they die and pass away. So a lot of cessations believe that. With the passing of John the apostle, the last apostle, these gifts faded away. They just faded away with the passing of John. And so they use this verse as proof that this is the main purpose for miraculous gifts. Now, again, I want to point out, and I'm going to do this like more than once, right? But when you go back and read that verse carefully, that verse doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. If you go back there and read carefully, it doesn't say, once again, 
The only purpose for miraculous gifts is to authenticate the apostles. And once they finish writing the Bible, the gifts are going to disappear. I'm I'm being very literal here because that's our argument. That's not in that verse. You go back, read it again. It's not there. But what it does seem to say is, but the main reason the gifts are there is to authenticate the apostles. Okay, that kind of sounds like it might be there. But we're not going to go into all the Greek, the grammar. We don't have time for that. But Bible scholars basically say, I don't think that's what it says. Because they say the signs of an apostle are one thing. Okay, go back to that verse. It says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. They say that is one thing. And what are those signs? Whatever they are, they required a lot of patience. That's what Paul says. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. These signs required a lot of patience, whatever they were. And then Bible scholars, when you read the Greek, you can see it in the Greek, the miraculous signs and wonders were another thing. So they're different things. They complement each other. Okay, there were the signs of the apostle that made them true apostles, and then the miraculous gifts also supported that, right? That's what it means. They accompanied the signs of the apostle, but they're not the same thing. The miraculous gifts and these miracles were not the signs that the cessationists are talking about. Okay, is that clear? I hope I'm not losing people. Okay, we're getting a little bit more detailed here. But they're different things. Signs are one thing, and the miraculous gifts are another thing. So one translator said it like this. You could say miracles accompanied the signs of an apostle, but they're not the same thing. So then what were the signs of an apostle? Well, these are things that required a lot of patience, like suffering for Christ, preaching the true gospel. Another sign is like that Christ-likeness in their lives, as evident. Paul talked a lot about that. Okay, look at Christ in me. Uh, Seeing the true resurrected Christ, okay, that's the mark of a true apostle, is you had to have seen the resurrected Christ, literally. So these are the signs of a true apostle, and accompanying those signs are signs and miracles. So again, look at that. Study that more later, but I'll leave it at that. So what am I saying? This verse is far from definitive proof that the only purpose for miraculous gifts were to authenticate the apostles. I don't think it teaches that. I don't think it says that. But here's something else. If the miraculous gifts were mainly, if not only there to authenticate the apostles, then please pay attention. How do you explain so many non-apostles performing miracles in the New Testament? How do you explain that? Okay, these gifts were mainly, if not only, there to authenticate the apostles because they needed to write the Bible, right? So God needed to kind of show that the apostles were from God and they had the authority to write the Bible. And once they finished writing the Bible, the gifts are gone. You don't need to authenticate something that's already done. Well, if that's the argument, then how do you explain all these non-apostles doing miracles in the New Testament? So we see Stephen and Philip, they were deacons, not apostles. They were doing miracles. Okay, I want deacons like that in our church. Okay, they were in revival in Samaria, Judea. I mean, they were like powerful, awesome deacons, crazy deacons. The entire Corinthian church were very active in the miraculous gifts, especially speaking in tongues. Okay, the whole letter is about that. Okay, there were the original 70 disciples on the day of Pentecost. Many of them were women. And we know that, I know this gets into a little bit of a controversial topic, but no woman was a writer of scripture. Only men were called to that role. But a lot of these women were prophesying, and they had these miraculous gifts. The, the four daughters of Philip, all of them prophesied. Luke is very clear about that. He had four daughters, and all of them prophesied. 
So were they all like speaking scripture? See, that's another inconsistent view with cessationists because they believe that that role was given only to men, but then now you're saying that all these women were also writing scripture, speaking out scripture. So there's something else going on, right? Miraculous gifts, there's something more than just all authenticated apostles to write the Bible. No, there's something more going on. There must be other purposes. And yes, there are. Okay, there are. And we're going to look at that next week when we look at the continuationist argument. But there are other reasons why God gave miraculous gifts, brothers and sisters. It's not just to authenticate the apostles. Yes, did it do that? Yeah, I think that was part of it. But was that even the main reason God gives supernatural gifts? No, because the Bible mentions several other reasons why the miraculous gifts are given. Several other. Like what? Like maybe bringing salvation, people into the kingdom of God? Maybe maturing the church for the benefit of other believers. In the ch- I mean, there are all kinds of other reasons, right? We'll look at that next week. So is that clear? So this is another argument. The more I look at it, it's not convincing. Okay, they need to prove, cessationists need to prove that this is it. Okay, the only reason miraculous gifts are given is to authenticate the apostles when they wrote the Bible. And then once that's done, that's done. They're gone. Okay, they need to prove that. And I don't think that's true. I don't think it's easy to be proven. Okay, number three. Argument number three. Cessationists also have the cluster of miracles argument. Okay, the cluster of miracles argument. John MacArthur teaches this, who I respect, by the way. I recently heard him preach live. It was a big blessing, and I respect him, but this is the argument that he basically gives. I've heard him give it, but miracles are not common in the Bible. Okay, this is what the argument says. But when you read through the entire Bible, there are really only three times in Scripture when a lot of miracles are happening. Only three periods or eras, if you want to call it that. And all of these periods or eras are connected to some great redemptive work God is doing. Okay, something major, big, God is doing, it is connected to that, and that's when miracles are happening. So, for example, Moses and Joshua, when they were doing ministry, okay, bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, that's when miracles were happening. Another one, Elijah and Elisha. Okay, when God was calling Israel back from rebellion and judgment was on them, God was calling them back, bringing revival, okay, a lot of miracles. And then finally, Jesus and the apostles. Obviously, that was a new work. Okay, God was bringing the new covenant. So yeah, during those times, there were lots and lots of miracles. And so then there are verses that seem to say that. Acts 7.36. This man Moses led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So yeah, Moses did a lot of miracles. Acts 5.12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Yeah, so when the apostles were here, a lot of miracles were happening again. So yeah, that seems to be true, right? It kind of looks that way, and yet, here's another response. There are some responses to this. So, I believe God did use miracles in special ways during those special times. Yeah, absolutely. During those important works of redemption. God was doing tons of miracles. Yes, that happened. But were the cluster of miracles by God's design? Okay, what, I'm, what I mean by that is, was it his will that they should only occur during those times and nowhere else? Okay, is that by design? And the reason I ask that is because I see other miracles happening throughout the Bible. Maybe not as much, not as dramatic, but I see miracles happening all through Scripture. So, for example, Joseph and Daniel, they had the supernatural ability to interpret dreams, even tell the king what he dreamt. I mean, 
Imagine that. You're not even given the dream. You tell the king what he dreamt and then gave the interpretation. That was the proof they were from God. But they had that miraculous ability. Saul, at one point, was overcome by the spirit. Okay, Saul was a king, the first king of Israel. He got overcome by the spirit. What did he do? He prophesied. And it actually says that he was among the other prophets. So there were a lot of prophets in Israel during that time prophesying. It looks miraculous to me. Samuel appeared to Saul in some sort of a miraculous vision and predicted his death. Okay, that was miraculous. David wrote prophetic psalms. In fact, he wrote one of the most prophetic psalms on Jesus' crucifixion. It was so specific and detailed. I remember sharing this with one of my family members. He was kind of doubting that Jesus was really from God and this is all true. And I said, look at this psalm. Clearly written thousands of years before Jesus. And he, he had nothing to say. It's like, wow, this sounds like Jesus. David talked about my hands and feet have been pierced, Psalm 22. The dogs have encircled me. They cast lots for my clothing. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. That seems miraculous. What about all the Old Testament prophets declaring with amazing accuracy things that would happen to Israel because they were under God's judgment and then they actually happened? Okay, what about all that? And then, of course, there are all the miracles that the Bible says are yet to happen. So this stuff isn't just past, but there are miracles that will happen when Jesus returns again. So leading up to Jesus' second coming, there are going to be all these miracles happening again, especially with these two witnesses. They're going to perform many signs and wonders, the Bible says. So what about that? So God took away these miraculous gifts, and then he's going to give them back before Jesus comes back? I mean, I, I don't understand why. Okay, why would he give back something he took away? if they're not necessary anymore. Well, they're just for the two witnesses. Oh, maybe, but, but, but it just seems very inconsistent. There's a lot of back and forth. So that's one response to the clutter argument. Not clutter, I'm sorry, cluster, <laughs> cluster argument. But here's a better response. You just, just stick with me for a moment here. Today, we're just kind of going through these different arguments. I know it's not a normal sermon. Usually, you know, it's a little different. But, but Sam Storms, he made this response. It's really good. But he said, could there be another reason why miracles seem to fade during certain parts of the Bible? Okay, yeah, they seem to appear in clusters, but could there be another reason why? It's not because God designed it that way, but could it be that during these other times, the people of God were in sin and rebellion? So when people are in rebellion to God, God's not going to be working as much. Do you remember that story when Jesus went to his hometown and he tried to do miracles and heal people, but what did the gospel say? Even Jesus, the Son of God, couldn't do many miracles. Why? Because of their unbelief, right? So even Jesus, in some way, was hindered in his humanity. Of course, not as God, but in his humanity. And so could that be another reason why there weren't miracles in the same frequency, the same amount all throughout? Because there were other things going on. People were in rebellion and sin. And we know that was true. They were in rebellion. And then, Storms, he makes this very critical point. Okay, please hear this. But he said, during those times when miracles were not as present, I'm not quoting him, I'm just kind of trying to make sure I'm getting the point clear. But during those times when the miracles were not as present, nobody in the Old Testament made the cluster argument. Is that clear? During those times when miracles really weren't happening, nobody in the Old Testament said, hmm, maybe the reason why is because God just isn't working like that right now. Because they only appear in clusters. Nobody makes that argument in the Old Testament. No one in the Old Testament made the argument that, well, miracles appear in clusters during special times. That's the only time that they happen, so don't worry. We shouldn't be seeing them right now. Nobody makes that argument in the Old Testament. Rather, what do you see? You see prophets 
in agony, right, during times of like backsliding and rebellion, they're not saying, oh yeah, the cluster is not right now. No, they are in agony going, God, rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah said that, right? Tear open heaven and come down, and that could include miracles. God, do something. Show yourself. Outstretch your mighty arm. They are just pleading with God, and what is all that? I think it could include miracles. They weren't just like, oh yeah, they just appear in clusters, so we're cool. We're just going to wait for the next cluster to come. No, they're like, God, you need to do something now. Okay, maybe that's why they weren't appearing. So nobody in the Old Testament makes that argument. And if nobody in the Old Testament made it, I think we should be careful making it too. I mean, it sounds good, right? It kind of makes sense, but again, it's not found in Scripture. There's no verse that says that. So are we okay, you guys? I, I hope you guys are okay. I want everyone to be okay. <laughs> but I also want you to be cl- uh, clear on this issue and challenged as well. Okay, you don't want to miss out on what God has for your life. And a lot of us, we're resistant. We are just resistant. It's like, no, that's not the way I grew up. And we say we're biblical, but you need to really look at what the Bible says. You really look at it. Don't just listen to your favorite pastor on the radio I'm sorry, who listens to the radio? <laughs> on the internet, on your phone? <laughs> I'm becoming like Joe Biden. Joe Biden talks about like the phonograph and <laughs> the radio shows. I'm not that old. But don't listen to the last pastor, your favorite pastor online, right? And just accept what they say. I mean, he might be a very good man, but we need to listen to what scripture says. So this is the third argument, the fourth argument, and we're going to close with this argument. But the fourth argument from the cessationists is the historical evidence argument. The historical evidence argument. And this argument basically says, it seems obvious that the miraculous gifts today, the miracles, quote-unquote, today, are nothing like the miracles we see in the New Testament and performed by the apostles. They're nothing like that. They're nothing. So, for example, when the apostles healed, it was dramatic, it was immediate, it was permanent, Nobody doubted. They just knew, oh my gosh, that person, his whole like arm grew out, right? <laughs> the, 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 the person lost the heart and then the heart grew back. I mean, something dramatic happened. It was permanent. It was immediate. And so no one questioned it, and yet I don't see that kind of healing today. I don't see that kind of healing today. So that's their historical evidence argument. I don't see the evidence of that. Okay, it looks so different today. Well, here are a couple of responses to that. First, again, I, I just want you to keep noticing this. That argument is not based on scripture. That is not them pointing to verses and passages going, yeah, God said it right here. That in the last days, after the Bible's written, after the apostles all die, miracles, they're going to be kind of around, but they're not going to be nearly the same. They're going to be way, way different. If not, they're just gone altogether. Again, that's not an argument from scripture. The Bible doesn't say that. And why do I keep pointing that out? Well, the reason is because I want you to understand Cessationists, again, I have, I have friends who are. They love the Lord. They love the Bible. They believe in the Bible, and yet whenever they get onto this topic, for some reason, that's not where they're coming from. Okay, that, that's by and large not where they're coming from, and the reason is because there aren't verses to back up what they're saying. Everything is kind of circumstantial evidence. You know when you go to court and there's a crime, but there's no direct evidence? You, you need circumstantial evidence, right? Things that happen around the crime scene. Well, it's kind of like that. They have circumstantial arguments, but nothing direct in the Bible. And I also want you to notice, this argument is from their own experience. 
Okay, we need to understand that too, because a lot of cessation is blame continuation is for being too like based on experience. Ah, oh, you believe in all those gifts because of your experience, right? Well, they're doing the same thing. They're basing it on their lack of experience. It's not based on some Bible passage. It's just, ah, oh, I don't see it today. It's not the same today. So that is one way to respond is that you are just basing it on your experience. Second, cessationists are saying the miraculous gifts have stopped because the miracles today, they don't look the same, right? They don't look like the miracles the apostles did. Well, if you believe that, if, if that's your argument, then according to that logic, then you could also argue that even preaching and praying should no longer be around today. Okay, that's the logical like conclusion. Why do I say that? Because even the preaching that's happening today and the praying that's happening today is not like the apostles, right? When I read the book of Acts, I mean, that's one of the biggest heartaches as a pastor. It's like, God, how come our church doesn't look like the book of Acts? <laughs> I mean, I love our church, but how, how come it doesn't look the same? Or, or any church for that matter. How, how come your church doesn't look the same? How come when we preach, like thousands don't like fall on the ground and repent and come to faith in Christ? And, and when we have a prayer meeting, I love our prayer meetings, come out Wednesdays every 7 p.m. Okay, most of you guys don't, do not come out. We're praying that that'll change. And I'm talking directly to you who don't come out. But we're praying, please join us in prayer. But why when we pray together, why does it not shake the room, right? That happened in Acts 4. So even preaching and prayer is different. So according to their argument, then even preaching and prayer should be gone because it looks nothing like what the apostles did. See, do you, do you get what the logic there? So that's another response. But then here's a final response to the cessationists. But maybe the miracles today, they look weak and ineffective compared to the New Testament. But could that be because of your own limited experience? Because Could it look weak and ineffective because that's your limited experience, especially if you live in the West? Because you don't have much experience of what God is doing around the world. Could that be the reason? Not because of something in the Bible, not because you actually know this from God, but, but you just don't have the experience. Could that be the reason why you believe that? You know, there's a professor named Craig Keener. I've mentioned him before, I think. But he's a professor of New Testament. He teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary, a fairly conservative seminary. And he was writing a commentary on the book of Acts. And in one of the chapters, he wrote a footnote and he decided in this footnote, because it was a chapter on like some miracles that were happening, he decided in this footnote, I'm going to mention some actual miracles, testimonies of miracles that I heard. And so he started writing this out in the footnote. And then he started adding more testimonies and more testimonies. And then finally, that footnote grew bigger than the commentary, right? It grew bigger than the, the actual chapter, the commentary on the chapter. And so it got so big that he ended up turning that footnote into a whole separate book. And he began to go around the entire world gathering credible testimonies on miracles that were actually happening and even ministries of miracles. And he had a strict criteria of what a miracle is and what testimonies are acceptable, what are not acceptable. He had this strict criteria and he started going around the world gathering all these testimonies, including from his wife's family. Uh, he's from the U.S., but he married a woman from the Congo. And so his entire wife's family is in Africa, in the Congo, and they have crazy stories, crazy testimonies of what God was doing. Entire ministries of miracles were happening. And so he went researching all that, and way beyond his wife's family, he went all around the world. And guess what? That little footnote turned into a thousand plus pages of firsthand eyewitness accounts of miracles that God is doing around the world today. 
1,000 plus pages. And when Dr. Keener presented that to the publisher, they're like, no way, we can't publish this, right? <laughs> We're gonna lose money publishing this much of a book. And then he's like, okay then, I'll cut it down. And then he's like, but I can't cut down everything. I gotta keep the cream of the crop. And so you know how long the book was? 700 plus pages. <laughs> so he cut out 300 pages. But it's still 700 plus pages of testimonies, of healings and miracles happening right now today around the world. And the book is called Miracles, appropriate title. It's just called Miracles. He actually came to Biola Talbot. This is a seminar I went to, but he actually uh, gave a lecture on this whole book. He's just sharing crazy, amazing miracles. So does historical evidence show that miracles are few and far apart these days? Yeah, if you have a limited experience. If you live in like Riverside and go to Starbucks every day and come to the Promised Church and that's pretty much all you do, then, then yeah, you probably never see miracles. And that's probably your limited experience. But if you're like Dr. Keener, you've gone around the world and seen many, many thousands of other believers and thousands of other churches and what is happening around the world, you might have a different view. You might have a very different view. And so Dr. Keener, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I would love to share some of the testimonies. You know, a lot of you guys are in the medical profession, so let me just share this one. But he actually talked to this doctor. He might have been a cardiologist or a heart surgeon. Are they the same thing? I know, I know there's like a lot of nuance. Okay, I gotta be careful when I talk to you guys. But, but anyway, but, but this heart doctor, okay? I'm a layman. <laughs> this, this heart doctor, he fixes hearts, okay? But he was working on a patient and the heartbeat flatlined. And there were a bunch of other support staff and nurses there, so they, they all saw this. And they were trying to revive him. He wouldn't be revived. It was flatlined and they pronounced him dead. Okay, they, they tried for several minutes. They literally put the sheet over him, okay? The doctor wrapped up, he was gonna leave. And he was a believer. And Dr. Keener talked to him, and he said, Dr. Keener, I kid you not, but as I was walking out of that OR, God spoke to me, and he said, go back, do it again. And he knew immediately what God meant. He had the, you know that machine, the defibrillator, is that what it's called? The defibrillator? He's like, go back. Okay, that big heart machine. <laughs> okay? The heart doctor was using the heart machine. Okay, I'm a layman. <laughs> but he went back, and God said, do it again. So he said he went back to that patient and the nurse, they're all wrapping up. They're watching him. They're like, what are you doing? He's like, I need to do this again. And then he prayed. He took out the defibrillator. He did it again. And the man came back to life. Okay, you could take that however you want. But Dr. Keener talked to that physician firsthand and said, this happened. Okay, I'm not making this up. And the staff saw it. He came back to life. We pronounced him dead. Now, that doesn't mean he has the gift of healing or that's a ministry that he's going to be doing ongoing, but I'm just saying there is the possibility now, right? So we're going to stop there because this is getting too long, and we're going to be looking at the continuationist arguments next week. But I want to close with this. But we are living in dark times. We are. And the church increasingly is being challenged on the inside. You know, I, I read a lot of pastor blogs and watch videos on YouTube, and the church in many ways is the hope of the world, but it's in a huge mess, right? We know that. There is false teaching on the inside. There's worldliness on the inside. And then on the outside, there is marginalization. There's, there are challenges. The, the godless culture is marching forward. You know, even just the other day, Jill and I, we actually talked and we are, okay, my children, I hope they're not too surprised by this, but we've decided we're not going to let them watch Disney movies. Okay, we have to hinder them from watching even Disney. I love Disney. I love Mickey Mouse, right? I love Mickey Mouse. I think I was Mickey Mouse one time for Halloween. But I love Mickey Mouse. And yet we need to hinder them. Why? Because their movies are getting more and more and more immoral and godless. So sorry, kids. 
they're not even paying attention. <laughs> They'll find out later today. But you can't watch Disney anymore. But it, it's like, it is getting extreme. And I don't think we're overreacting. We actually are probably on the later end. And so we are living in these days, these dark days. And let me ask you, we talk a lot. Okay, we talk about the Bible. We, we share the gospel with our non-Christian friends. We talk a lot all the time. But is that enough? Is that enough? Given the times that we are facing. Paul said, and I'm closing with this. 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. The NIV says, It is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God is about power. It is not a carnal power. It is not like, oh, we're powerful. It's not about that. We'll look at this more next week. It is a gospel-shaped power. As you are more weak and dependent on God, then his power flows through you. And what is one way that happens? Spiritual gifts. It is spiritual gifts. So is this what we need? We need this, brothers and sisters. It's not about talk. There's too much talk in the church. There's too much talk about Christianity online and to the world out there. We need the power of God. Amen? We need the power of God, and the gospel is the power of God, but that is not just the message itself, but it is anything that is gospel-shaped. I think spiritual gifts is one example of that. Amen? Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we just want to come before you, Lord, right now. We, we worship you. We thank you. And Lord Jesus, you are an awesome God. Yes. Yes, Lord. I want to believe your word. The kingdom of God is not about talk. It is about power. It is not only about talk. Yes, we do need to talk, obviously. But it can't end there. Lord, Holy Spirit, we need more of your power. We need you. We need you in our lives. We need you to flow through our church, our ministries. We need you to open up our minds and show us what is really in Scripture, not just something that we heard, online or grew up hearing from our home church but what is really in the bible and what is not in the bible and help us god because lord god this is about more than just oh i just want to discover who i am but lord god but this is how you design the church and the kingdom of god to advance in this world to advance the gospel so that more and more people would be saved and be in eternity with you. So Lord God, we need your power. So Lord God, thank you, Jesus. It's not some vague mystical power. It is through the exercising of our spiritual gifts. We need the power that is found in spiritual gifts. All of them not just the ones we pick and choose and feel comfortable with, all of them. Challenge us. Some of us, we need to be challenged. We're too comfortable in our own beliefs. They are like ruts. You keep dragging that bicycle over your lawn in the same area, it becomes a rut. Okay, that same line of thinking goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and then eventually you can't see anything else. Challenge us, God. We need to be in line with Scripture, not our traditions, not our own comfort. Scripture. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.